Welcome to the World of Foundational Horror, World of Horror podcast. I'm Mom, a.k.a. Christina, and this is the podcast where I take a tour of classic international horror. On the main pod, Mac and I choose a genre or subgenre of horror and pair an international film with an American one. With this series, I want to fill in the gaps of my own knowledge and find those foundational films that have influenced and inspired modern horror. The only rules for this project are that the movie has to have been made before the year 2000, and it must not have been made in the U.S. The movies for this one are Mario Bava's A Hatchet for the Honeymoon slash Il Rosso Segno della Folio from 1971, and William Wyler's The Collector from 1965. A Hatchet for the Honeymoon was directed by Mario Bava, It was written by Santiago Moncada and Mario Bava based on a story by Moncada. And it stars Stephen Forsyth, Dagmar Lysander, Laura Betti, Femi Benussi, and Jesus Puente. Bava is also credited as cinematographer. This movie was released on the 2nd of June, 1970, and has a sweet running time of 88 minutes. I watched this on RE-TV. The plot in this movie is not the point, but it basically involves a man who is uh, an Italian fashion designer. He designs bridal wear, and he has inherited this company from his mother, who uh, was murdered. And in the beginning, we see um, him moving slowly and stealthily down the corridor of a train. One thing I like about the cinematography is that his his face or the faces of his victims are often reflected in the silver blades that he used that he uses i don't think he ever uses a hatchet and his weapon of choice seems to be a cleaver but he rests his head against a door on the train he has a flashback of walking up a staircase he breaks into the compartment and in the in the first compartment a wedding gown is lying across the seat and he moves into the second one and he encounters a man and a woman in a lip lock he raises the cleaver the woman sees this and screams then we see him wiping the bloody cleaver on the wedding gown and placing a do not disturb sign on the door as he closes the door a voiceover introduces us to John. He is a self-professed paranoiac. He says he's completely mad. He speaks to a fly, comparing its fate to those of humans, noting that flies are unaware of their mortality. He says that he has killed five women so far, and he must continue killing until he finds out the quote whole truth. Um, One thing that I don't like about this is that self-awareness. I mean, often this is the plot of these kind of movies, but to have the protag know that's what he is intentionally doing was a little distracting. His wife, Mildred, is reading a book on mediums and spirits. In the morning paper is the story of the bride who was killed on the train, but we also learned that she had gotten the dress from John, and there's a cynical joke that, thank goodness, she had already paid for it. Breakfast, Mildred and John discuss divorce. And Mildred says she will never give him one. Mildred is going to a seance tonight, and she wants John to come to it 
I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we ever get that seance. She also unfavorably compares John to her dead husband. A woman comes asking if she can fill the now vacant model position, and he gives that job to him. She will later become his love interest. He sneaks into his secret room, and in it are lots of mannequins dressed in bridal wear. He rests his head on the breast of one of the mannequins. One of his models tells him that she has to stop working for him because she's getting married. They meet in the private room, and he tells her to pick out a wedding dress. They dance, and he has the hazy memory of a woman calling out his name, and again, from his own point of view, walking upstairs. But then in the present, he reveals that he has a cleaver. I'm not really sure where he had had that concealed. In voiceover, he tells us he will learn more about his memory by killing this woman. After she's dead, he lays her corpse down and kisses it on the lips and cremates her body and then uses the ashes as fertilizer. It's a pretty good plan, but uh, it's a little hard to believe that he's gotten away with this for five, now six murders. Again, the plot is really not the point. It's more about this castle where he lives and the costumes. And uh, I don't know, it's just really kind of a fun visual movie. But if you stop and think about it too much, it's not as much fun. At breakfast, we get some sweet split diopter action as John reads the paper and Mildred fiddles with the toast. She tells him she's going away for a week and that even though he will be able to pretend he is single, she will come back. Uh, Helen flies to meet John so they can fool around while Mildred is away. She asks what happened to her sister, the most recent victim. John tells her that he killed her, raped her, and buried her, and Helen laughs. He says he doesn't want to harm her, yet he's, he has feelings for her, so he is trying to distance himself from her, but she's not going for that. They kiss. He returns home to the castle and turns on the TV, where, coincidentally, Black Sabbath from 1963 is playing. He notices that the bedroom door upstairs is ajar. He finds Mildred reading a book on the bed. She has come back early to catch him in his infidelity. There's some nice deep focus here too. She tells him she will always be here by his side. He goes into the adjoining bathroom, turns on the water in the sink to drown out her voice, and the water seems to run pink and then red. They talk about the failed state of their marriage, and it seems that they were close before they got married, but have not had sex since. But tonight's the night, apparently, and she puts makeup on. She appears to be very excited at the prospect. But he brings a cleaver to the bedroom on a platter, and Mildred shrinks away from him. And he says that killing her is the only solution. And her acting in this scene is insane. Uh, she just keeps sort of fainting almost. She's running her face over her hand like she can't believe what she's seeing. And part of that might be because he is wearing a bridal veil and he chases her around the bedroom, wielding the cleaver and stabs her to death on the staircase. Before he can clean up the body, the detectives ring the doorbell and pound on the front door. John loses the veil and answers the door. 
cops are demanding to know um, what's going on and where the screams were coming from. I guess there were complaints from next door, the next door castle. John shows him the Baba movie, which was on the TV, and Mildred's blood is dripping from the staircase. So this is a little bit of suspense, but the police officers do not notice that. They do notice and make note of the fact that John is sweating, despite the fact that it's a cold night. So just to let them know that they're suspicious of him. John buries Mildred's body, but it is as if his childhood self is watching him do it. Flashbacks to the hazy memory, and we see a woman calling out to John as she clutches her neck. The next morning, John is eating a very soft boiled egg and sees that the pages of Mildred's book seem to be turning on their own. The maid pours Mildred's cup of coffee and seems to see Mildred, but John cannot see her. And it soon becomes clear that everyone else can see Mildred except John. At one point, Helen is very flirty with John until she catches sight of Mildred glaring at John in the mirror, but John does not see her. The detective drops in the bridal fashion show. He tells John that his method for catching the killer is just to be patient. Well, I mean, I guess after like six murders, but John walks up to the bedroom calling out to Mildred. Her book is on the pillow and John swats it away. He falls asleep to the howling wind, which sounds sounded to me like the TARDIS. When he wakes up, the book is back on the pillow. He sees a vision of Mildred climbing the stairs. Mildred repeats that she will never leave him and that everyone will see her except him. John burns Mildred's remains and places them in a leather satchel, but that doesn't help. Everyone can still see Mildred. John tosses the bag into a river, but when he returns home, the bag is there, wet, and Mildred's laughter fills the castle. John hides in his special room and Mildred reveals herself to him. Helen finds John sitting in the room he had when he was a child. And coincidentally, in that room, there is a set of mounted butterflies. He tells her to go away, that he is at the end of his road. He only has one step more before he finds out the truth. I mean, if anyone talks to you like this, I would say run. But she doesn't. He pulls her into the rocking chair and they kiss. The detective speeds to the castle. John hides, but the poodle of one of the models finds him and several police officers bust into the room. I don't know if this was a continuity thing or if this was supposed to be a dream, but in any case, I didn't understand whose dog that was. And are the models just staying there at the castle with him? Because that hadn't been mentioned before, but Helen comes downstairs in John's dressing gown and covers for him with the police. He tells her to go away again. She says she doesn't want to go, but he flashes back to the memory of going up the stairs looking at the cleaver. He dances with Helen in his special room. She is dressed in a wedding gown. They kiss super awkwardly, and more of the memory comes back to him. He is a child looking through the keyhole of his mother and stepfather in an embrace. John says he never wanted to harm Helen, but he has to know who killed his mother. He brings the cleaver down on Helen's arm, and in his memory, he sees himself cleaving up his mom. He confesses to Helen, and she nopes right out. The police are on the other side of the door. Helen breaks down crying, and John is taken into custody wearing a lovely yellow ascot underneath a dark shirt and light jacket. He is taken into the paddy wagon, 
and a butler runs out with the leather satchel. John sees Mildred sitting next to him. Now she tells him that only he will be able to see her. At first they will be together at the insane asylum, and then in hell for all eternity. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I don't know, I like the part where everyone could see her except him. I thought that was a really nice twist. The Spanish villa that the majority of the film was shot at was formerly the home of Spanish dictator Generalissimo Francisco Franco. Originally, the script didn't include the character of Mildred Harrington. It was only after Laura Betti expressed interest in working with Baba that the director rewrote the script so that Betti could have a suitable starring role. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the movie would have been without her character. According to star Laura Betti, while shooting at the villa in Spain, numerous policemen kept watch during filming because there were concerns that fake blood might stain the floors of the villa. Briefly, what does Letterboxd have to say about it? Ian West gave it four stars. It was a rewatch for Ian. Macabre waltzes, mannequins, meat cleavers, and bridal gowns. A deliberately paced Baba Jalo with supernatural tendencies is right up my alley. Could use more, or any, hatchets, though. <laughs> Three and a half stars from Felipe Furtado. Anatomy of a Mannequin. It is, Baba most, it is Baba's most character-based horror movie, which makes it stand out among his work. Hmm. Not sure if I agree with that. I thought that there was some good character work in Black Sabbath. It is sort of a Hitchcockian psychological study. But as usual, Baba loves the surface and not the inside of things of poor people. Yeah, I would agree. Pretty mad, deliciously odd in its perverse fetishes. Almost no distance between film and character. I'm not sure what that means. Owen Hughes gave it one and a half stars. Bat shit for the boring moon, am I right? Not my best pun, I'll admit. It's a weird mix between Jalo and fairly typical Euro slasher, but not much really worth talking about. I thought some of the visuals were pretty good, but the story didn't do anything for me. I just found it to be a very dull, unexciting movie when I really hoped it would be the complete opposite. After Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, and now this, I'm kind of left with the impression that maybe Mario Bava and I will just never get on. So that could be true. I like Baba quite a bit, and I, I I don't think this is a great movie, but it looks great, and I think it's a lot of fun. The Collector was directed by William Wyler. The screenplay was by Stanley Mann and John Cohn, based on The Collector by John Fowles. It starred Terrence Stamp and Samantha Egger. It was released on May 20th, 1965 at Cannes, June 17th in the U.S. and October 13th in London. It has a running time of 119 minutes. The brief plot synopsis from IMDb says, A man kidnaps a woman and holds her hostage just for the pleasure of having her there. Uh, That's not bad because he actually says something very close to that. I read this book when I was in high school, and it really made an impression on me. 
and I read um, the Magus. I'm not, I don't think I ever read the French Lieutenant Swimming, but I never got around to seeing this film. I think it's hard. I mean, I don't even know if there's a point to comparing a novel to a screen adaptation, because I think in most cases, the novel just gives you much more of an experience. But in this case, I do think that they are both really strong. And especially after a second watch, I thought that the direction and the acting and the writing to a degree gave us a really good sense of who these characters are and the themes of obsession and of the class differences and the differences in the characters between, between Freddie and Miranda were pretty well spelled out. Although I feel like in the novel, there was a lot deeper discussion and examination of how they felt about life and how they viewed it. It's touched on here. And I think if you can fill it in yourself, you'll get a good picture of the two characters. But I, I feel like it, it went a lot deeper in the book. The music in this movie didn't do it for me, but um, a lot of people cite it as one of the stronger, stronger points of the movie. I feel like it just indicated to much how we're supposed to feel. Obviously that's the job of, of, uh, of, of the soundtrack. But in this case, I just felt like it was really, there wasn't any subtlety at all. It was like, feel this now. And I, I didn't, I didn't care for it, but a lot of people would disagree with me and say that it was really well executed. Well, Hose, let me know how you feel. Get in touch. So jaunty, hopeful music plays over a scene of a young man who is catching butterflies. He sees a large estate for sale and he breaks into the basement, pushing cobwebs out of the way. The music and his quiet but enthusiastic expression clue us in to his plans. And I think that Terrence Stamp really does a lot of great face acting in this movie. Also really good uh, physicality of this character. The voiceover says that he liked the isolation of the house but wasn't sure if he would buy it, even though he had made lots of plans and has been stalking this woman pretty aggressively. So there's some nice shots now from inside the van as he follows Miranda. When she catches the train, he drives to where she emerges from the subway. She seems happy, carefree, friendly. He parks and retrieves a piece of candy from the glove box, and we see that there's a bottle of chloroform resting there as well. Miranda goes into a bar and Freddie follows. He hides behind a pole. She seems disappointed by her meeting with an older man and Freddie finds a good place to park. He pours chloroform on a cloth. He positions his van in an alley such that Miranda cannot get past it either on the left or the right hand side. We hear her anguish cry and see that Freddie has tied up Miranda's hands and has gotten away scot-free. And there's a great long shot now. I think it's of Trafalgar Square. Uh, UK, Woho's get in touch. But what I like about it is it, after such an intimate and terrifying encounter, we just see the anonymity of the scene and all these, all these cars 
on the road. And it seems really anonymous and impersonal. The camera focuses in on Freddy's van as he speeds away from the city. And I, I just like that. It's very quick, but if you've ever thought like me, how do people get away with this sort of crime and how can no one notice? And the, the tragedy in that and the despair in that kind of situation, I think this captures it really, really nicely. At dusk, he returns to the house. He carries Miranda, still unconscious, into the now-furnished basement room and sets her on the bed. She sleeps, oblivious, as he places her shoes on the floor, removes a strand of hair that has fallen into her mouth, pulls down her skirt, covers her, and locks the door behind her, placing a jelly cabinet in front of the door. Kind of reminded me of Parasite a bit. It begins to rain, and Freddy runs outside and joyously frolics and laughs in the rain. There's a flashback to a memory of an entire office teasing and laughing at him. A woman comes and delivers a notice to Freddie, which states that he has won 75,000 pounds on the football pools. So I looked that up. It would be $1,614,111 in pounds or 1,945,488 in U.S. dollars in today's money. When Miranda wakes up, she explores the space and sees that the fixtures, such as the mirror, are new, and that a whole dresser and closet full of clothes are in the dark, dank room. Freddie enters in a suit and provides tea on a platter. She asks why he has brought her there, and he tells her that this is her room, and he explains that no one is around to hear her scream. That's terrifying. She tells him she does not come from a rich family, so he has kidnapped the wrong person if he wants a ransom. But he tells her that he knows that, and he knows a lot about her. In town, the news has broken that Miranda is missing. Freddie seems pleased as he retrieves two newspapers. He brings her a jelly jar with flowers, and she demands to know why he has kidnapped her, imprisoned her, and if it isn't for money, it must be for sex. Freddie is flustered by this, and his put-on-more-poshy accent slips. He tells her he wants her to be his guest. She says she doesn't want that, and he grabs her from behind when she tries to escape. He rubs his face into her hair and tells her that he loves her. He also tells her that they are from the same hometown, and he has been obsessed with her for years. She tells him that he could go to prison for years, he says it would be worth it. She tries another tactic and says that he has to think of her parents and that she will be found eventually. But he tells her, no, she will never be found because even though they are looking for her, no one is looking for him. She tries to bargain with him to let her go, but he ignores all her suggestions. She runs past him and screams for someone to help her and there's just a static shot of him holding the tray, looking down, so, so sort of disappointed. And she's running around behind him, just trying windows and doors and screaming until she tires herself out. She wants to know how long he's going to keep her. And when he says he hasn't decided yet, she says, if he is waiting until she falls in love with him, she'll be there until she dies. 
When he brings her tea in the morning, she fakes having an appendix attack and tells him he has to take her to the doctor, but he figures out her ruse and locks her back up. She slaps him across the face and slams the door on him. He says he will make a bargain with her if she eats and doesn't try to escape and if she talks to him. So usually when we see movies like this, we've just become accustomed to the idea that men in movies abduct women with the purpose of torturing and eventually killing them. That's not his intention here. We, we learn from him from voiceover and from the way that he talks to her that he wants to have a relationship with her. And one of the things that I find really fascinating with their interactions here is they're obviously poisonous and, and they're not, they don't reflect real life except that I do feel like even in healthy relationships, there's a certain level of bargaining this hadn't occurred to me until just a couple of minutes ago, but I, I mean, it's, it's in a completely absurd and exaggerated way here because of the nature of their uh, quote relationship as abductor and abductee. But I do feel like this isn't, it isn't completely alien that sometimes in relationships we do engage in these sort of bargaining sessions. They dicker over how long she will stay, but he tells her when the time is up, she can go. And he tells her she will have to stay four weeks. She says it wouldn't matter if it were four years because she knows how she feels and she's never going to fall in love with him. But he seems hopeful that she might come around. She wants to write to her parents and she makes several demands, which she dutifully writes down. She finally eats and he wishes her bone appetite. The deal that he struck with her sends him to another playful mood, and uh, that's reflected in his body language. Later, we see a calendar she has painted on the brick wall, and her drawings are hung up. She is bored, and she wants him to tell her a dirty joke. He says he respects her too much to do that, but he tells her a sweet joke instead, and tells her she can take a bath in the main house. He ties her wrist behind her back. When she gets outside... She drinks in the fresh air. She asks if they can walk a little, and he agrees. He is gripping her arm, and then there's this sort of weird part where he runs his hand over her arm and her face and her hair, and I think we're supposed to assume that he's become aroused. She screams, and he covers her mouth and presses his face against hers. She says that if that kind of thing ever happens again that she just asks that he um, not take her by force. She says she won't struggle, but if he does do that, she will never respect him ever again. And she'll never speak to him ever again. He insists that he never will do anything like that. He leaves her in the bathroom, but sits on a chair outside the door she starts the bath and then sort of explores the room. She sees that the window is boarded up and that he has taken the blade out of the razor. Freddie is badgering her about the man he has seen her with. But just then, a, uh, a neighbor man rings the doorbell. 
Miranda screams, but Freddie gags her and ties her to a pipe. And it's kind of interesting with his face acting again. It's almost like he thinks that they're playing the same game and she's broken the rules of the game. Obviously they're not. She is not. Um, she's only cooperating with him to appease him, but he, he mistakes that for compliance and, yeah, it's just really interesting. So that whenever she does try to try to escape, he's he's surprised, he's hurt, he's angry, he feels betrayed, but she keeps telling him, "I I I wouldn't be a good prisoner if I didn't try to escape from time to time." The man is from some preservation society. Miranda very cleverly uses her foot to turn the water on, and Freddie um, when the the they both hear that downstairs. Freddie says that his cousin is visiting. The water overflows the bathtub. It pours out of the room and onto the second floor. When Freddie comes in, he doesn't say anything, but he presses a towel against her naked body. She looks away as he does that. When she offers her hands to him to be retied, she asks if he could tie her arms in front as they hurt the other way. She defends her attempt to escape when he says he wants to show something to her. So he shows her the butterfly rooms where there are several display boxes full of butterfly settings. He explains his hobby to her, um, how he has bred certain caterpillars. And, and, and I mean, the, the room is absolutely, the walls are absolutely covered in these display boxes. And she wants to know how many butterflies he has killed. And that's an interesting question because he's like, obviously he has to kill them. And to her, it's not obvious at all um, that why wouldn't she just, why wouldn't he just allow beauty to exist in the world? Why does he have to catch it and trap it and kill it and display it? It doesn't make any sense to her. It makes, it's the only thing that makes sense to him. So um, she attempts to help a still alive butterfly and notes that now he has collected her. Which, yeah, I mean, we get it, but I don't know. But yeah, I guess they have to spell it out like that. The only thing that sort of makes that okay for me is that it's her face is reflected in the glass of one of the display cases. But yeah, I mean, we get it. Um, I don't know. It's a little, it's, a, it's too much. She tells him that he is acting out of a fantasy. And he tells her more people would do this if they had the time and the money. I thought that was, this was an interesting uh, comment too. <laughs> I, I don't know if if people would kidnap, you know, uh, the objects of their obsession if they had the time and the money to do that. But capitalism itself is a pretty exploitative system. Uh, and that's putting it lightly. Capitalism is an exploitative system, and the people who have more money than can than they can ever spend almost or out of necessity, exploit people who work for them. So I, I mean, it's a pretty outrageous thing that he says until you dig into it a little bit. She doesn't see the world that way. So she refuses, she, she refuses to believe that this is true, but I don't know. I think he makes a point as they talk. She realizes who he is, that he has won all this lottery money and, she says that he could do so much with his money 
but instead he is surrounded by death. And she includes herself in that, in that statement. She's sketching at her table and he asks if she would ever sell the sketch. And she, she doesn't think a lot about it. She's like, it's not very good, but yeah, sure. Fine. $200. And he's like sold. She's like, why don't you put it in the drawer with your butterflies? He tells her he's so excited by the fact that she's given him one of her drawings that he tells her that she can write a note to her mom and he will post it for her. But he dictates the letter. I am safe and not in danger. Don't try to find me. It's impossible. I'm being well cared for by a friend. And as he's dictating this, I like his body language here. He's wearing a jacket and he's holding the hem of the jacket almost like a child. Um, and as someone who is often insecure and um, I'm, I'm prone to anxiety, I, I do engage in these sort of um, tricks to calm myself and bring myself back into the present moment. It just sort of reminded me of that. I mean, I think what he's doing here is probably reminiscent of the, of the posture he took when he was a little boy. That's what it looks like to me because he's, 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 um, he's grounding himself by holding on to his jacket. <laughs> I thought it was really good. I don't know if that was stamps, uh, instinct or Weiler's, but I think it's really good. She says she's going to address the envelope and she's like, you know, if you, if you like, you know, these drawings, you can choose one from, from the back wall so he's got to turn around to retrieve one of the drawings. And while she does that, she tries to sneak a note into the envelope, but he catches her with that. The note says that she's being kept prisoner by a madman and she is safe, but frightened. He is hurt by her words and he points out their class differences and bemoans the fact that she never talks to him and she just wants to leave him. She says that she just wants to leave the house, not him. And he asks her if she thinks that he could ever understand The Catcher in the Rye, which is the book that she asked him to purchase for her. Then at the last moment, he tears up her letter and says it wouldn't have mattered anyway, because in the letter she had said they were outside Reading, but they're nowhere near Reading. And the name that he had given to her is not her real name. His, and the name he had given to her is not his real name. On the last day, quote unquote, she is excitedly and cheerfully packing. And he says, yeah, she can leave, but she can leave at midnight. So he, she takes off her jacket. He wants to talk about Holden Caulfield and how he disapproves of Holden's behavior. And she says that he doesn't understand, which is the wrong thing to say. He expresses contempt for a painting of Picasso on the cover of her art book. He destroys the book and the cover of the art book. He works himself into hysterics, saying he would never fit in with her and her friends. Her eyes fill with tears as she realizes that she has alienated him in a really damaging way. He says that he was right to bring her there because they can never be friends outside her prison. He runs upstairs to retrieve a dress he bought for her. She wears it that night. He doesn't tie her wrists together and he takes her to the main house for dinner. He has bought champagne and caviar. He has framed her drawing 
that she had signed prisoner 1436 above the fireplace. She makes a toast, quote, to us. He asks her if she will see that man when she gets back and tells her it will be lonely at the house without her. In her napkin, he has placed a ring box, and she looks at it very worriedly, and he asks her to marry him. He says that she could have her own room, and she could lock it every night. She says that that arrangement is horrible. He says that he just wants her there, and he just wants to see her. And she's like, this is, this is not that, uh, you know, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> she can never marry someone who she didn't love. I don't know if she gets all of those words out, but that's obviously what she means. She tells him what she thinks he wants to hear, but he sees through that. And she realized that he's never going to let her go. She tries to get out of the house, out of a window, um, but he slowly stalks her as she moves from room to room and he opens up the packet with the chloroform in it and he stares at her as he advances. He subdues her in the butterfly room. He carries her limp body, this time upstairs, and lays her down on a bed. He slowly joins her on the bed in probably the creepiest scene in the whole movie. He slowly places a hand around her waist. He nuzzles her. He lightly touches one of her breasts, but then he hugs her. When she comes to back in her room, he is staring at her. Ah, creep. He tells her that when she was asleep, he didn't take advantage. And she begs to be let go again and that she has stayed the four weeks. But he says that he wants her to fall in love with him. And he wishes she would just try. The next time she's in the house, she asks him if they could sit downstairs and ask for something to drink. So she tries to get herself drunk and her hands are tied at the wrist, but she moves closer to him, which makes him extremely uncomfortable. She puts her arms around his neck. She kisses him and whispers for him to untie her hands. He walks away from her and stands with his shoulders tensed. He says she's just pretending. He can't look at her, but he unties her wrists and she slowly pushes his jacket off and takes her hair down. She undoes her nightie and lowers it so she's standing in front of him naked. He seems pained. He can't look at her as she starts to unbutton his shirt and she kisses his neck. She whispers to him, help me, and he kisses her finally, passionately. But then he turns angry and says he no longer respects her and that she is just like a common street woman and she would do, quote, any disgusting thing to get what she wants. He burns her drawing in the fire and ties her wrists again. At the doorway, she says, I'm never getting out of here alive, am I? He opens the door and is pouring down rain outside. As they are walking to the cellar, she sees a shovel. She drops her toiletries. And when he goes to grab them, she slams his head with a shovel, but then is disgusted by what she's done when she sees his face covered in blood. She runs away from him and there's this, you know, drawn out struggle on the wet lawn. Um, he's dragging her and he's pulling her and he finally gets her back into the cellar and she accidentally pulls the plug from the heater out of the wall. She's terrified that she has 
uh, mortally injured him. He drives himself to the hospital and falls out of the van when he gets there. He doesn't even have time to put it in to park. And some people have to come out and, and retrieve the van, but he's taken into the hospital. Back at the cellar, Miranda shivers in the cold and has developed a cough. Apparently he was gone for three days when he returns his head is bandaged and he's wearing a suit. He brings her food on a tray, but when she goes to touch him, he tells her never to touch him. She falls down unconscious on the floor. He puts her on the bed and tells her that he still loves her. She asks if he will tell anyone about her. She tells him she does not want to die. She says so much to do, be. And she says there's a painting she wants to do of a field. She's having a lot of trouble breathing. He rushes out saying he's going to get a doctor. He leaves the door open in his haste. And this is the most heartbreaking part because she sees it, but she's so weak that there's no way that she can catch her breath, much less make it to the exit. It's so sad. When he gets to the doctor's office, he pauses and decides to go to the pharmacy instead. When he gets back home, he finds her dead. He goes to leave, but then instead sits down on the stairs staring at her. His voiceover says that he sat there the rest of the afternoon reminiscing. Uh, The quote is, suddenly she was dead and dead is gone forever. He tells us that he thought for a moment that maybe he had done something that made her do what she did and that led to him losing his respect for her. But then he finally decides, no, it was her fault all along. And that his only mistake was aiming too high and that he would need to find someone who was ordinary and someone he could teach. And the last shot of the movie is him following a nurse who is the next person he has set his sights on. Briefly, what does Letterboxd have to say? Bill Chambers gave it one and a half stars. Such a lumbering elephantine rendition of what should be a taut post-Hitchcock thriller, overlit and smothered in an uneven Maurice Jarre score and linear to a fault. Worse still, Wheezy Weiler has no faith in the sophistication of 60s audiences, speechifying subtext that would readily, that would be readily apparent from a TV guide capsule, quote, butterfly collector kidnaps a woman he finds attractive. Naturally, he received an Oscar nomination for it. Yeah, it's true. But I think it's kind of unfair. I feel like, you know, this podcast has shown, uh, especially when we look at remakes, that American directors, uh, modern um, American directors don't trust audiences. Stuff that's like subtext or subtly hinted at in an international film when it's remade is like bluntly and clumsily spelled out as if to say, do you get it? I don't know. You know, sure. I agree that Weiler did that, but lots of directors do that. Jade gave it two stars. This was the least sexy kidnapping situation I could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. I think the missing ingredient is consent. (laughs) That makes it the least kidnapping. It's just, it's chilling, it's horrifying, the dehumanization, the fact that he doesn't, he obviously doesn't, I mean, maybe this is obvious to 
everyone except me. But I just, every time I encounter something like this, where a person's humanity is completely denied, I find it so heartbreaking and so infuriating. And that's exactly what's going on here. He doesn't see her as a person. He sees the image of her. He was probably the most in love with her when he was stalking her because he he didn't know the opinions that she had in her head and in her heart. He didn't see the way that she viewed the world. Those things didn't interest him at all. All he wanted was her just to have her. And it makes me want to vomit. B.C. Howard 92 gave it five stars. I love feel-bad movies, and this made me feel bad. <laughs> I need to watch it again soon. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I, I don't know if I need to watch it again soon, but it, it does. I do like feel-bad movies, too. <laughs> Nathaniel Thompson gave it five stars. Superb, deeply chilling showcase for Terrence Stamp and Samantha Egger in A Tale of Captivity and Manipulation. That remains incredibly gripping, tense, and beautifully mounted <laughs> to this day. At first, it seems odd this was directed by Hollywood legend William Wyler, but he proves more than up to the task here with the closest he ever came to a pure horror film. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great study in, in, in the mind of an incel. According to Terrence Stamp, Weiler wouldn't let Samantha Egger off the set during the day. He also wouldn't allow her to eat with anyone else during the lunch break. Stamp argues Weiler knew what he was doing as the director whispered to him at one day, whispered to him one day on set, I know this looks cruel, but we're going to get a great performance out of her. Just wretched. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I mean, you either respect and trust your actors or you don't. Um, I haven't heard of a case of a, of a director doing this to a man. Wohos, if you have, um, please illuminate me. But generally it's this kind of thing is done to manipulate a performance of a woman. And I find it just disgusting. I hate to overuse that word, but it, do, it does disgust me. It, and But it also confuses me. I don't understand why you can't just talk to your actor and you can't work with them to get the performance that you want. While the overall film, while overall the film is faithful to John Fowle's novel, the scene where Freddie's neighbor comes over and Miranda tries to get his attention by flooding the bathroom was invented for the screenplay. The British mod group The Jam based their song The Butterfly Collector on this film. It was the B-side to their hit single, Strange Town, which reached number 15 in the UK charts. For the sequence in which Freddie drags Miranda through the rain, William Wyler had prop men throw buckets of water over Samantha Egger without warning between takes. <laughs> Egger later spoke of how Wyler succeeded in making her feel defenseless, hence deepening her performance. Well, I would imagine so. So add Weiler to our ever-growing list of dickhead directors, woes. But check out this movie. It is great. If you want to feel really terrible, watch uh, this one in a double feature with 10 Rillington Plates.
Wahoos, thanks for tuning into this mini. I'm really having fun with the series, and I hope you are too. Coming up on the main show, it's my pick of genre, and I have chosen Alien Invasion. We will be looking at Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956 and 1978, as well as Before We Vanish from Japan. Get in touch and let me know how you feel about these series and if you have any suggestions for this series or for the main show. Remember, Wohos, we love you and don't go into the basement.